Billy Pumba. It's Timon. Actually, no, it's Bruce Lenoil. You are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Alexa, play Skull Rock Podcast. Playing Skull Rock Podcast from Amazon Music. Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts L. John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time here in the show, welcome. Every week, Dave Bossert and I talk all things Disney and pop culture with never before heard stories. Try saying that 10 times fast. And uh, behind the scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, park attractions, books, performances, music, and so much more. I'm one of your co hosts, Al John Go musician and lifelong disney marvel star wars and pop culture fan and you can email me aljon a-l-j-o-n at skullrockpodcast.com and i'm dave bossard i'm an artist filmmaker author and welcome to the skull rock podcast if you love disney and pop culture please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and we are now available on amazon music and audible And you can like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. How are you? Happy Father's Day. Happy belated Father's Day. How's that? (laughs) Happy Father's Day to you, Dave. I know, like, we're, we're, uh, we're the magic of podcast technology. We're recording this on Father's Day. I know. Um, And then uh, we're releasing it to the world post Father's Day. So we hope that all the fathers out there, grandfathers, great, great grandfathers, what have you, uh, had an excellent, most excellent Father's Day. Yeah. And Al John, this is your first Father's Day, isn't it? It is. It's very, sweet i mean um got some loving cards from the fam the extended fam and all these texts coming in and everybody's wishing us well and um i i couldn't be more appreciative and super thankful to be in the ranks now with you dave as a father and i'm just loving life and uh, hopefully we'll continue you know and um with any luck and hopefully everything will work out great for this adoption and um I can't wait. It's just a joy. It's one of those things you never thought you'd be able. I, I never thought that I'd be able to see this day, but uh, it, it looks better and better every day. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm looking you know, forward to taking really the kids is. to see Uncle Dave when they go out to Disneyland at some yeah, point. Yeah, at some point. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, it's amazing. Everything has uh, reopened out here in California, including Disneyland, yeah. uh, as, as of June 15th. And uh, I have to say, I've seen reports on the local news that uh, Disneyland has been packed. Oh, man. And I mean, that's great. I'm glad that, you know, people are getting vaxxed. You know, I think we're closer to our overall nation national quota, which is really good. And that people are starting to get back into the theaters and back into the parks, which we love so much. And I know you you went to see a movie recently. So that's awesome. I did. I did. We're going to talk about that in a little bit once we get to uh, our news. We also have a great guest. Yes. Uh, animator and sculptor Ellen Woodbury is uh, in the green room reflecting uh, <laughs> before she comes on with us. Nice, nice. Well, we look forward to talking about the career and animation 
animation and sculpting, which is going to be fascinating. Of course, we always have fun on that. And I would also like to encourage our listeners. I know that maybe some of you are new to the show and this stumbled upon us. Uh, for those longtime listeners, I encourage you, Dave and I both encourage you to go to your podcast platform app and give us those five-star reviews. If you think we've earned it, some feedback, leave those reviews and we'll compile the comments and questions you may have on the reviews uh, for upcoming shows as well as leaving us voicemail. Yes, you can leave us voicemail there through Anchor. All you have to do is go to our podcast page at the uh, Skull Rock Podcast on anchor.fm and then call that, uh, leave us a voicemail on that link you see there. And it's also at the bottom of the show notes as well. And then your voice could actually show up on a show. So there's a lot yeah. of different ways to kind of interact with us. And we'd love to not only get your emails, but also your voicemails. That would be so great if uh, if people call in, just give us your first name, where you're from, yep. and that you are listening to the Skull Rock podcast, and we will put you on our show. I'd love that. I'd love that so much. But right now, let's get on with the news. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Anywhere near the surface. Everything good is above the surface. Walking. Air. <gasps> the sky. Clouds. The sun. Whoa, don't look at it. Just kidding. Definitely look at it. <laughs> so there's some fun from uh, Disney Pixar's Luca. Officially out on Disney+. Plus. Uh, you're invited to check out Porto Rosso. A little bit of Italy there uh, as it debuts there on Disney Plus about sea monsters and a lot of fun there in the Mediterranean. What do you think about Luca? I have yet to see it, actually. You know, I, I all I can say is that uh, I think that this is a gorgeous looking film and I would prefer to see it on a big screen, as I've said in the past. And so, you know, uh, I think there's a missed opportunity here that they did not uh, uh, simultaneously drop this in theaters and on Disney Plus. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, honestly, these movies are made for a big screen for the movie theaters. And I just think that they're they've left a lot of money on the table by not putting this in the theaters i think they should just re-release all the movies from onward over again and put them in theaters because i think onward when the when the pandemic started and and onward was yeah. in the theater for about a month and they had to shut yeah. it down yeah. it's just such a brilliant movie it had so much heart same goes for soul and a lot of the other releases that happened during 2020 and into 2021 and um yeah i would love to see these come back in in some way shape or form um and be seen by a lot of people i, I know that Kristen and i would have loved to see onward um in the big big screen yeah i would have liked to have seen soul on a big uh big screen Same. as well yeah you know I, I i wound up watching a screener that that the, they sent me and I'll likely watch the screener uh, when they send it to me for Luca. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to pay extra to see it on Disney Plus. And, I'm, you know, I, I would have gone and, and paid the money to see it on a big screen. My question to you, Dave, is how do you think these films that were released on streaming platforms are, are going to contend with films that are in award 
you know, season contention or whatever, are they going to treat them the same? I'm not really sure how that works. You know, there, you, you would think they would. I, I mean, I try to see as many films as I possibly can, especially the ones that are going to receive nominations towards the end of the year. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, uh, it, it's, uh, it's one of those situations where um, I think if a film uh well, I guess it didn't really make that much of a difference because Saul won uh, a lot of awards. Yeah, uh, I guess you so. Know? Uh, and I think, but that was, it was an anomaly. It was a different, you know, the, the entire country was shut down. There was no movie theaters. You could only watch it if, you know, you got a screener of it or you, you know, watched it on uh, Disney Plus. Yeah. And, so, you know, from, from my standpoint, um, I, I don't think it has a bearing because the people who are voting, like myself, who vote on the Academy Awards, uh, you know, are making it a point to see all of these films. Oh, well, um, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's good because, um, you know, obviously it, we'd love for, for all those films uh, that are put out, uh, no matter what, what uh, how they're released, to just, if they're good quality films, they should be in the running and, and, uh, and get all the awards that they deserve. So and all the recognition Absolutely. they deserve. Absolutely. Without question. So you speaking know? of uh, Disney Plus, Dave, today, Disney rele- uh, re- revealed the opening title sequence and key art for Chippendale Park Life, which is cool. And it's going to be streaming at the end of next month, Wednesday, July 28th. It's comprised of three seven-minute stories. Each episode follows the two tiny troublemakers, Chip and Dale, one of my favorites, uh, trying to live the good life in a big city park while having giant-sized sky-high adventures. Nervous warrior, warrior, Chip, and laid-back dreamer Dale make the perfect odd couple. They're the best buddies, and they drive each other nuts <laughs> in their, you see what they did there, uh, in their perpetual pursuit of acorns. These ultimate underdogs are joined by Pluto, Butch, and other iconic Disney characters as they face down bullies, great and small. So um, it's produced by Zlam Animation with uh, Mark Dupontevace. Uh, do, you know, do you know Mark? No, I don't. Uh, the executive producer and Gene Carroll as director. Uh, Vincent Astud ser- uh, serves as the series confo- composer, and this is—it's uh, very cool because it reminds me of those Mickey Mouse shorts, the, that animation style, and it looks a lot of fun. I love the Mickey shorts, and I love all the uh, the shorts they've released on Disney Plus, and I'm just really looking forward to this series once again. Just awesome content. Yeah, no, I I, I think it, it's terrific. You know, I, there's so much stuff being made. There's so much content coming out across all of these streaming platforms. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, it's it's tough to try and keep up with it, isn't it? Well, it is, and it you it, it all has to be prioritized at this household. You know, we we're all putting things in watch lists, and when mm-hmm. we have the time, we'll go watch it. Like. You know, Kristen and I had just binged a bunch of Disney shorts because we've been meaning to do it for a while. And it's like, let's go ahead and just pop these on. They're only like six minutes each. And they're wonderful stories. And and I feel like it's not just content for content's sake. It's quality content. And it's super enjoyable. And we we just loved it. Like we were watching some of the Pixar uh, shorts the other day of the, the 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 kind of singing in the rain kind of thing that happened with yeah. this old couple and we're just like oh you know this was released a while ago but we haven't seen it and and it's just so heartwarming and it's great to see that content and i, I can't wait to see these new um 
these new Disney shorts uh, with Chip and Dale. They're one of my favorite characters. I just hope that they have Donald Duck put in there because I feel like Donald and Chip and Dale are great kind of foils for each other. (laughs) Absolutely. I agree with you on that. Right on. Well, speaking of foils, it looks like Loki may have met his match and found the foil in the last episode of Loki and Disney plus spoiler alert, just in case, but um, you know, it's been very, very popular. Uh, And it says here from the Hollywood reporter, Loki uh, from head writer, Michael Waldron and director Kate Heron has been a huge hit for Disney plus with the Disney CEO's, Bob Chapek revealing that the June 9th premiere was the streamer's most watched premiere uh, show to date. Um, Of course, it doesn't provide those streaming service numbers, but we can only believe that that's the case just from how it's been received. Um, So another big hit for Loki. And I want to know, Dave, if you've caught up. With the show oh, so yeah. far. Oh, no, I, I watched it. But, you know, again, I, I would sit there and say, look, the first episode was all about uh, orienting a, a new audience. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the Marvel Universe, uh, you needed all of that information that they put into that first episode. That's why I really wish they had dropped two episodes um, uh, for the premiere uh, because I really would have liked to have gotten beyond that first episode and into the next one. Do you think um, I, maybe we mentioned this last week. Sometimes we, we have these conversations through the week and I sometimes forget, but uh, aren't they considering the, or reconsidering how they release some of these series? Like I heard that maybe some of the animated stuff will be released in batches, like the bad batch example. All right. Um, They're actually considering that the next season of the bad batch, which I believe has been greenlit would be just, just dumped all at the same times for people to just enjoy. And uh, that's some of these other things. Look, I I hope, I hope they do that uh, with some of these series. I really do. Um, uh, Clearly they're, they're still figuring uh, out the landscape. Uh, They've moved, uh, you know, Loki dropped on a Wednesday uh, and uh, they moved, uh, moved it from, from Friday premieres to Wednesday premieres because theaters are reopening and they don't want to cannibalize people who are going to go out on the weekends to a movie theater. True. So, you know, and again, you know, Aljon, as the, as the world reopens, as our country reopens, people are going to start going out uh, more. Uh, They've been cooped up in their houses for what, 14, 15 months, Mm -hmm. 16 months. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, people just want to get out and do stuff and go out and see friends and, you know, uh, enjoy a movie with a communal experience of an audience, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, maybe they'll try to figure it out. That's a lot of moving pieces, you know, because your your own uh, worst competition is yourself. You know, they're they're releasing content. They want people to talk about it and tweet about it and do YouTube videos about it. And then they have these movies coming out. So it's like, how can we maximize our our exposure and and continue to ride these uh, brand waves, right? So. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that all all happens because they're just dominating social right now. Everything Disney, Marvel, it's all dominating. Uh, speaking of new series, and I mentioned this, we just got this in, Dave. It's the animated anthology Kazasi Moto. 
Generation Fire from leading African um, African creators set to release on Disney Plus in 2022. Brand new, Dave. Have you heard about this series? Yeah, you know, I read a little bit about this. This is from some creators from uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Uganda, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, and Egypt. And they're going to bring a unique vision to audiences around the world with uh, this new series. And it's a 10-part collection of original films set to premiere exclusively on Disney Plus in late 2022. I love that idea of international storytelling or storytelling from a different lens um, that we're not used to seeing. So this will be really cool. Um, presenting these action-packed sci-fi fantasy stories and bold visions of advanced technology, aliens, spirits, and monsters from those uh, creatives from Africa. And this is led by Oscar-winning director Peter Ramsey from one of our favorite movies, Dave, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, I love that film. Oh, this it's so, so good. It's so good. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that, and I love the idea that uh, that Disney is opening up to to more of these uh, these creators from different cultures and and seeing that because I've oftentimes loved you know Japanese storytelling and anime and different things like that, and it's great to see those those stories coming. And, and, and you know, I I love the different art styles from uh, all over the world. Totally. Uh, so to be able to see that animated, I I'm excited about this series. Yeah, me too. Just once once again, more great stories told in the best way possible. So yeah. uh, speaking of stories, Dave, you went to the movies this week to see Hitman Hitman's Bodyguard Two. Um, and apparently it struck gold, you know, as the oh, theaters yeah. are coming yeah, it, into it, itself. It, so. Yeah, it took out A Quiet Place 2 uh, to, uh, you know, it's at the top spot. Uh, Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Uh, and uh, I have to say, I, I was not uh, expecting a lot. Uh, and I really enjoyed this film. I saw it on an IMAX screen. The sound was incredible. Of course. It was like, you know, body shaking sound in in the IMAX theater. And uh, Ryan Reynolds is just, you know, he, he's just great. The guy uh, just knows how to deliver his lines and his performances are, are just a crack up. Uh, this is a very... You know, it's a violent movie. I will tell our audience oh, yeah. that. It's a very violent movie. But uh, it's also a very funny movie, and it's almost a bit of a buddy movie. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have to say, I really enjoyed it, and I would recommend people, you know, absolutely see it on a big screen because uh, some of the stunts and chase scenes are just incredible. Right? Shades of Deadpool meets Lethal Weapon which is yeah. really cool. Yeah. And Ryan Reynolds, first of all, the cast I go gaga for anyway, because Chris and I both love Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. I think they're great together, but you add in one of my personal man crushes, uh, in, not man crushes. I mean, I do have a man crush on, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you see, I'm admitting it here, right? So Ryan Reynolds, man crush and Samuel L. Jackson, but then it's Sal Salma Hayek. Hello. Ha -ba -ba -ba. Like, uh, I love, I love all of them. They're great. They're all great. And, uh, yeah, no, it, it was a really great chemistry between yeah. the three principals for this film and uh, really very enjoyable. Great, great writing, you know, really fun dialogue and uh, just very laugh out loud moments. Yeah, man. It seems like the domestic, it says here in the article, domestic box office should heat up even more over the next weekend because Universal's Fast and Furious F9 installment will launch and 
it looks like it's going to be at least earning at least 300 million. Um, so that is going to be amazing. The movie industry folks is bouncing back. Oh, very quickly. And I have to tell you, Al John, every weekend going forward, there is a big movie dropping. I mean, you know, you've got Fast and Furious 9, you've got Black Widow, you've got, uh, no, hold on a second. You got Fast and Furious, yep. and then you've got um, uh, uh, Black Widow, you've got uh, Jungle Cruise with Dwayne Johnson and Emily yep. Blunt. I mean, you've got all these great movies that are, you know, coming out in the uh, coming weekends. It's, it's just absolutely amazing and and guess what i'm going to i'm back into my rhythm of at least (laughs) once a week going to the movies yeah there you go there he is man back to his old routine and and i'm glad i'm very happy about that for you and and, and by the way speaking of theaters uh i I sent you this note amc theaters nearing deal to operate la pacific cinema locations and that includes the iconic Cinerama Dome. There you go. Uh, in Hollywood. And I'm really hoping that AMC absorbs Pacific theaters and preserves those locations and the Arclight theaters. Uh, those are great, uh, great theater, uh, great theaters around Los Angeles and, uh, and iconic uh, for the movie industry. Absolutely. Yeah. You sent me that. And I knew that those theaters were definitely in danger. They were, they were in danger of shutting down forever. And I'm glad they came in and, they're doing it, and um, you know, I, I think this is going to lead to maybe maybe more consolidation among some of these other theater companies. So we'll see what happens there. We have some regrets to talk about, unfortunately. You know, uh, it seems like every week uh, we we have some of these titans of of entertainment kind of passing. And I was, it's very, uh, very sad for me when you pass this note along about Frank Bonner, the sales manager, Herb from WKRP in Cincinnati, passes away at seventy nine. And I tell you how much I love WKRP in Cincinnati. Really, an iconic sitcom from uh, from from the what eighties, I guess it was, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So from it, actually, uh, the series ran on CBS from nineteen seventy eight to nineteen eighty two, and you go. and of course he played the fra- the the sales manager uh, Herb. Which, by the way, I worked in commercial radio for a number of years back in the nineties and into the two thousands. And I can tell you that there is always a Herb at every radio station I've ever worked at. Uh, <laughs> not only imagine. are they, this, they have a, just a weird sense of humor, a little just kind of off kilter, but they also have the weird sports coats that, you know, he's been known to wear, but not only was he known for his role, he's best known for WKRP in Cincinnati, but he was also on a bunch of different shows as well. Um, you know, just like just a 10 of us growing pains on ABC, both of them, ABC shows who's the boss and family ties. So he was just a, a really great uh, kind of character actor. Yeah, he really in. was. He was one of those character actors that you would see on a lot of those popular uh, uh, shows from that time period. You know, he was on murder. She wrote, yep. uh, you know, he, he just, uh, he just had a, a great way about him. And it was sad to see that he had passed. And we also lost, 
lost uh, Ned Beatty. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ned Beatty was 83. I mean, he had a good life uh, and he had an incredible body of work, including uh, the unbelievable performance in Deliverance. Yeah. And and by the way, he was playing one of our banjos and guitars in that one. So. <laughs> was he? I think Is so. That right? yeah, he was pa- right. playing Gibson. Huh? Yeah, he was playing an Epiphone, actually, I think, uh, oh, which gosh. was great. But, you know, he was Oscar nominated uh, Kentucky native, uh, mem- memorable in the movie Nashville. By the way, Nashville, uh, un- I guess it's kind of an unsung uh, underrated film, but I, I hope everyone can find a way to stream that that movie and, and check out what old Nashville used to be like. But check out Nashville, all the president's men, and of course, Superman movies. And he was the kind of the henchman for Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor, which he's just just unbelievable. He pretty much wrote the book on how to be that kind of bumbling sidekick. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Otis. I mean, what a, what a great character, but uh, I know that you have some fond memories of him. I will always remember him. My first introduction to him watching the Superman movies, but he will be missed. Ned Beatty. Uh, rest in peace. Absolutely. Uh, but you know something, as we've always said with uh, these great performance performers, uh, uh, their work is going to live on uh, and we'll be able to see them and revisit with them uh, in some of these great works. Absolutely. Skull Rock Podcast, Women in Animation. Al John, as promised, we've got the incredibly talented Ellen Woodbury uh, joining us today. She is not only an animator, but she's a stone sculptor. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later on. But, you know, she started her career in animation, actually going to CalArts, and she was in the experimental animation program with Jules Engels. She then worked at Filmation, where she did the He-Man and She series before joining Walt Disney Animation Studios where she worked on everything from Great Mouse Detective through Meet the Robinsons. She was a supervising animator on The Lion King with Zazu. She animated Maurice and Beauty and the Beast and so much more. It's incredible. Welcome, Alan, to the Skull Rock Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's so great to see you, Alan. It's been such a while. Uh, you know, I, you're you're you moved out of Los Angeles and went to Colorado uh, after you left Disney, and you've been a, a stone sculptor. And for our audience, I would just tell people Google Ellen Woodbury's sculptures because she is doing incredible work. And you're not just doing stone; you're doing like a different materials, right? I mean, you're doing like marble, or is it all just stone? Oh, no, it's well, there. Every stone is a kind of stone. It's not just stone is a generic uh, category. Um, And I work in lots of different kinds of stone and I do a little bit of bronze as well. Wow. That's amazing. But, you know, let's step back for a second to you went to CalArts. And I I, I think I was saying this right before we started the show. You're the first artist to come on the Skull Rock podcast that went through the experimental animation program 
with Jules Engel at CalArts. And uh, most, of the, most of our other guests that, and most of the people you and I both know in the industry went through the character animation program, which was sort of the, you know, the Disney side of the animation program at, at CalArts. But you were in the experimental animation side. Can you talk a little bit about that and being uh, mentored by Jules Engel? Well, um, uh, uh, before that, I had when I was in undergraduate school at Syracuse University in the film school there, I had thought I wanted to go to the Disney program at CalArts. But uh, Ronald Reagan made it such that you could only get financial aid for one undergraduate degree. And then you are only eligible for financial aid uh, for a master's degree. So that so the decision was kind of made for me beforehand because I knew that I wanted to get to CalArts because that was the best uh, animation school in the world. So I didn't really care um, at that point. I just knew I had to get there. But I, I went there as a visiting student and I toured uh, the experimental animation uh, um, program and department and I met Jules and it was, and it felt exactly right to me. Um, it was, I mean, I, I had been through Syracuse and uh, taken electives in animation because they didn't have a major in animation really. Um, so I knew that once I got to CalArts that I could pretty much figure out how to learn what I wanted to learn. But when, when I met Jules and I, and he told me about the program I was like, well, this is exactly what I want. It was, it was, he, he provided the teachers and the, the courses and the um, equipment and instruction on the equipment. And um, you were there to make a film. It was, I mean, those were, when I, when I got there after I was accepted and I, we made the bus trip out from New York to LA, um, me and my husband, Brian. Um, the first thing when I met Jules, he said, here you are, make a film. And it was like, wow, there was no, there was no, well, you have to do this and this, and you've got to qualify for this. And only these kind of people are selected to do these kind of jobs. And, you know, there was no hierarchy. Here you are, make a film. And here, here are the cameras and the machines and we'll teach you how to use them, make a film. And it was like, that was, that was after SU, which was really academic. I mean, it, there was a lot of production in there, but there was a lot of reading books and writing papers and, and uh, very, very heavily academic to get to a place that was pretty much for me as a grad student, purely artistic was wonderful. Yeah. And, and just so the audience knows, Jules Engel is like an animation legend. Uh, he started out uh, at Disney. He was in, uh, uh, he worked at Disney from 1938 to 41. He worked on Fantasia. He worked on Bambi from 1942 to 44. Uh, he was an animator in the first motion picture unit, uh, which was, you know, uh, doing stuff uh, during World War II. Uh, for uh, the war effort. Uh, and then from 1944 to 1949, he was one of a group of artists that formed the United Productions of America, the UPA studio, which, you know, was so influential in the look of animation in the late 40s and into the 1950s. Uh, and so, you know, he's just got this incredibly storied career and he headed this program and was your mentor. That's just unbelievable to me. What what kind of a person was he like? Um, he was 
incredibly encouraging. He was really insightful. Um, he was he was an abstract painter and an abstract animator. Um, and I I I don't a lot of a lot of a lot of his paintings I don't really understand because I'm not coming from that sort of a background. But a lot of his films um, it, uh, just affected me emotionally. Um, um, he he had a brilliant sense of color and timing and and putting shapes together. Um, that was that was really it was it just hit me on a very pure emotional level. Um, and maybe I gained some intellectual understanding of it um, as as I went through uh, my two years of, of uh, working with him and learning from him. He did a, every other Monday, I guess it was, he'd do a show in the theater in the Bijou of films and he'd show films that I'd never seen before. And he'd talk, he'd, he'd give an introduction, which was sort of uh, this, this is, I mean, he would never say it that way, but, but this is what I want you to see in this film. You know, that, like he'd say something about the timing or something about the shapes or, or something about the way a character was uh, presented. And, and that was like, so, so that just you're conscious. Okay. So, so sort of key into that stuff and, and, and get out of these films, what, what Jules was finding so important. And it was, I mean, and it was brilliant and it was inspiring. So every two weeks I had this new shot of inspiration. Um, uh, you know, I I had only met him a couple of times, uh, but and and talked with him, uh, but he he just had a very uh, easy, gentle way about him. Yes, he was he was never judgmental. He would never he would never encourage you to do something that he wanted you to do. It w- it was like whatever whatever path you were on, he he helped you um, to pursue whatever whatever your interest or your um, the the topic that you were interested to, to put forth in your film. Um, he was, he was, uh, he was an enabler and he was, he was an inspiration. An enabler in a positive way. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> in a positive way. And, 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 you know, you were, I didn't realize this, but were you, were you in the master's program? Yeah. So, so you had done your undergraduate at Syracuse and you came to Cal Arts and did your master's, you got your master's and what did you do when you left Cal Arts? Did you? Well, I made two films at Cal Arts, one the first year and one the second year, and they both won awards. And my, my second film, my master's thesis film won a focus film award, a focus student. It was a student national student competition. Um, and it won one of those things. And the prize was um, a week in LA with uh, experts in the film industry. So I was already there because I was at CalArts, but it was still really cool because we went around to all these different studios and, and met these people and learned all these different aspects of live action and animated filmmaking. And um, I, I met um, Dan Hansen. No, Ed Hansen. Dan was, Ed, Dan's the layout guy. Yeah, Dan's the layout guy, yeah. yeah. Ed, Ed Hansen, who was the vice president of Disney Feature Animation. And I, and I said, I, um, I want to work for you. And he said something like, um, I, need, I needed to put in my portfolio. So he, he didn't say it that way, but anyway, um, so, so after, after the, um, after the week was over, I, I sent my portfolio down to Disney 
and uh, um, they they had it for two weeks or whatever it was. And somebody called me and said I could come and pick it up. And I said, well, did you see my films? And and they said no. And I said, oh, well, why don't you hang on to it until you have a chance to see my films? Because it's the best work that I've done. Um, so so they did. And then they hired me. And you got hired onto the Great Mouse Detective, right? Yes, I was hired into cleanup uh, on Great Mouse. Yes. Yeah, At the end, it was like part of the animation SWAT team where they where they bring people in at the end to try and get it done in time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and, and I can, came in with maybe, I don't know, six or eight other new people. Can, can you t- just talk a little bit uh, and let our audience know what a cleanup artist does? Oh, um, well, the, the, the simple answer is that they put a clean line around the rough animation. Um, in my case, I, I worked with Dave Pacheco, who, who is a, um, a key cleanup guy and, and went on to be a, another stellar Disney artist. Um, but uh, he allowed me to do the overlapping animation on hair tails and drapery for um, Dawson, Olivia, Mrs. Hudson, and, and some of Basil. We didn't do a lot of Basil, but um, so, so uh, he let me do hair tails and drapery, um, which, you know, and I was, I was doing the cleanup, but, but I still got to do that stuff as well, which was, really fun for me because I wanted to animate. Um, so, um, so Dave was, was complimented on the overlapping animation that, that he done in his scenes. And he said, Oh, I didn't do that. That was Ellen. So it was like, what, what a wonderful thing to, to happen to me, um, it, to get a compliment, to have someone notice, you know, that I did a nice job on the tail. So it's always nice, isn't it? Yes. And, and the thing is that, 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 that attitude, that, that, um, situation went, goes, went all the way through Disney, through, through Disney animation at that time. If you did something good, people noticed and they told you Yeah, because all we were all, we were all so interested in doing the best we could possibly do. Mm-hmm. It was, it was really a culture of excellence and it, and, um, and, and sharing information and knowledge and teaching each other. And I mean, I learned so much from the extraordinary people that I worked with and it was, it was such a generous atmosphere. It, it really was. And, 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 and I of, I'll often think about this, but you know, you're, you're each helping one another, uh, it's a reciprocal kind of thing. Everybody is is, is trying to, uh, and, and there's almost a, there's an edge of co- competition because everybody's trying to do oh, the huge, best they possibly can, right? But but it's it's friendly competition. Yes. It's it, it's it, it's it, it doesn't get you know knockdown drag out. It, it's just friendly competition where everybody's trying to do the best they possibly can and make it the best it could be. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so from, from the cleanup aspect of it, where did you go? What did you do? Um, well, let's see, that was Great Mouse Detective. Then we had a layoff um, and I was one of the four weekers, which means I was laid off for four weeks and then brought back on, assuming that we would go on to Oliver and Company. Mm-hmm. Well, we kind of did, except that then there was a, a big stop in production because they had to rewrite the story. So, right. so I came to realize that this is sort of a Disney tradition that you start a film and then, you know, a couple of months into it, everything stops, they rewrite it, and then we dive in again. 
So during during that time, all that downtime, I started doing animation tests and I took the little drunken mouse from Great Mouse Detective. I can't remember his name. Um, and I started doing little tests on him because he was this little ins insignificant character. And and, um, you know, he had he was he was intoxicated. So he was a little you know, he had this funny way of walking and moving and, <laughs> Anyway, and so so there was something that I could that I could uh, have some fun with, I guess. You could you um, could put personality into it and and performance into it. Yeah, yeah. So I started doing uh, personal tests, and I and I showed them to anyone, any animator that would look at them. <laughs> so I was getting like comments from everybody. I would I would get like you know five different sets of comments on on whatever I'd done. Um, and and I I kept on doing this, and and finally someone said something to me about um, about being an animating assistant, and it was like, oh yeah, that's what I want. So I so I so I went to Kathleen Gavin because because there had been at at that time. During the downtime in Oliver, there was no position of animating assistant. It had been uh, sort of it evaporated on Black Cauldron or something. I don't know, right? Because um, that that was before my time. Um, and so I, went and, and, but, and, and I was just going to say, an animating assistant just for our audience is, is exactly that. You're working closely with an animator. Uh, and, uh, they're, they're giving you a couple of keys and then you're filling in the rest. Is that right? Uh, no, it's actually an apprentice animator. Oh, okay. Um, so, so it, you were actually given scenes and you were just working closely with an well, animator. Well, it, it, it varied. It varied. At some, at some times I was doing rough in-betweens. I did rough in-betweens for Mark Ken. And then he would give me, this was, this, yeah, this was on Oliver. But, so, so just, just to backtrack just a tiny bit. Um, I went to Kathleen Gavin, who was the associate producer. And I said, I'd like to be an animating assistant. And she said, great, what's that? <laughs> so, so I had to explain to her, and I guess she did some research to, to actually get the, the real official definition of what it was. Um, so, so finally I was assigned to an animator and I was assigned to Mike Gabriel. And so, and so I did tests and I worked with Mike Gabriel. And then after that, um, then I, I worked with Hendel Boutoy and then, and I worked with Mark Hen. And, um, so I had one person that, that I could show my tests to and they, and they would respond to me and then I could learn what they wanted, you know, what they wanted me to know sure. that I didn't obviously didn't know that I demonstrated through my tests that I didn't know yet. Um, so instead so of getting five sets of notes, you were just working with one person. Exactly. And, yeah. it, and it made a huge difference. Sure. And, and I, I mean, everything that they told me, I wrote down in a notebook and wow. Yeah. Do you yeah. still have those notebooks? Do you, do, do you do. still have them? I yeah. do. They're in a box in the storage room. Yeah, yeah, they are somewhere and they were teeny. So I could carry them around in my pocket. So when they were saying something to me, I could write it down. I mean, it, it was like real time notebooks. Um, uh, and, and by the way, three really great animators. I mean, uh, Mike Gabriel, Handel Butoy, and and Mark Hen. Uh, just, just, I mean, you you have oh, some yeah. fabulous mentors. Yeah, yeah. It it was a it was a super learning experience, and um, I gave myself the the uh, uh, leeway, I guess, that I could make the same mistake twice, but I couldn't make it three times. 
And I did make a lot of a lot of mistakes twice. Because and then I go back through my notebook and go, oh my God, look at I had that. How did I do it again? So um, so if I did it three times, that was like really bad news. And I had to make a really big note and put it on my desk. Mm. So my desk, my animation desk was actually full of of post-it notes for for things not to do and to do. So it was it was it was it it was a wonderful immersion and and intense experience of learning animation at Disney. It's amazing, isn't it? I I, I mean, you know, to be able to get mentored by, by, you know, some great animators and have them pass their knowledge on to you. And, uh, and to me, I always view the, the arts as a continuous learning. I mean, you're always learning, aren't you? Oh yeah. You're, you're learning today uh, uh, when you're doing sculpture, um, uh, different types of materials and how those materials react. Right. And it's not, it's not just the technical stuff. There's always aesthetic stuff that you're learning. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's two things that, I mean, it's just like at Disney where, you know, you'd, you'd start and, and there was always drawing to learn. You could always draw better. Um, and then there was always technical stuff to learn because our, our films got more and more technically sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So as the, there was that technical stuff you needed to learn, but you could always do like I did. A, I did a lot of animals. So it was tons of learning about the animal because because I love animals and I love learning about them and I want to bring their unique textures because of their species to the character as well as their personality, because you can take, you can take the kind of animal plus the personality and put it together and you get this, this combination that really works because it's sincerely a horse or sincerely a little dog or sincerely a cat, but it's also that, that personality. And if you can find those, those physical and, and personality things that that fuse, then you've got you've got somebody that's that's really effective that that people will really believe in, and that I really believe in. Right, right, and, and you know you you were doing that uh, um, uh, sort of assistant uh, animating assistant on Oliver and Company, but you you finally became an animator on on the Little Mermaid, right? Yes. And, yes. And and, and, and what were you, what, what characters were you working on, uh, in, on the little mermaid? I worked on, I, I was mostly Sebastian. I was, um, Duncan Archibanks at that time was my, was my mentor. So, and I was in the Sebastian unit, but I also did a lot of flounder. Um, I think that was it. Sebastian and flounder. Wow. And with Sebastian, wow. I did all the, like the micro animation. Cause that's what animating assistants got was the teeny stuff. Right. So I did an awful lot of micro Sebastians walking and talking and swimming and singing. So <laughs> it was really technical stuff because he had six legs, two claws. Um, so so walking. Wow. That that was that was really tough. A lot of uh, changing perspective where he would have to grow teenier as he as he walked away from camera. Sure. Um, um, this, so, so it, it was, a, there was a lot of continuity, um, which is, which is not the storytelling scenes. It's the getting from here to there scenes. Um, but you're, but he still has to be in character. It was, it was, um, it was the kind of scene where it, 
How do I say this? I was excited about, I was tremendously excited about everything. Everything I wanted to do, I, I wanted to do it the best that I could. And people mm-hmm. noticed. It's like, oh my goodness, there's that little insignificant scene, but it works. Yeah. And, and the thing, and that, that was, that was uh, something I, I think I'd already learned it at that point at Disney is that if you do a good job, they notice. So, so you, it behooves you to do absolutely the best you can, even, even if this stuff is teeny microscopic, insignificant, you know, it's still, it matters. Yes. It does. And, uh, every aspect of these Disney animated films mattered because collectively that's what made them yeah. such great films and timeless films, right? Yeah. Yep, I agree. Yeah. And uh, what, what, do you, what do you find most memorable about working on The Little Mermaid? Do you have any, any, any inside stories that you can uh, share with our audience? Oh. And we're, oh. Fa- we're a family show, so clean language. Oh yeah, I know. I know. Um, um, at, at the end, at the end of Little Mermaid, I I done more footage than some of the animators, and I was still an animating assistant. And I put in my reel to the artistic review board, and I petitioned for myself and said I want to be an animator. Um, and I I was not really supported on that. Um, why do you Why do you think that's the case? I, and well, uh, it was explained to me later and, and, um, uh, that, uh, Duncan was, this was Duncan's first gig at Disney and mm-hmm. he was, um, a, a directing animator and this was his first character. And, um, he, he was, uh, he, he really owned that character Yeah, and, and I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know, uh, late, I worked with him again on a boo, which, which was really fun. Um, and he apologized to me at that time. He said, Ellen, I'm, I, I, um, I made a mistake in not recommending you to be an animator because, um, I think I was just too invested in the crab. I was too close to it and I didn't have a a larger perspective. Mm. Um, but that, but there were other animators on the review board who said, yes, she should be an animator. And so I was promoted. Oh, good. So, so it it wasn't. It's it's, um, it's kind of. Uh, we had a we had a a saying that sort of developed from experience at Disney that good things happen badly. Um, and it's <laughs> that, that it's sounds like, about right. <laughs> it's, it's like ultimately, ultimately, you achieve your goal. You get what you want, but it's not necessarily pretty or fun getting there. Yeah. specifically. Yeah. I think that, that what Duncan said was absolutely, absolutely right. Because when you are that close to a character, I mean, you live and breathe that character, their blood throws flows through your veins. Yeah. And if you, I mean, maybe he didn't understand the Disney culture because he was new to the studio. Right. I mean, right. I, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't say but all, but um, I, like but like you did say, uh, a, a good thing happened. It just happened badly. Right. Yes, because <laughs> there there were other animators who said this is a good reel. All these scenes are good. They're solid. They have weight. They have personality. Yeah. She deserves. She did. She did more footage. She deserves to be an animator. And so right. I was promoted. At and I have that's my first credit as an animator. Um, is on Little Mermaid. 
which is awesome. And then you went on to do Rescuers Down Under. Uh, and, yeah. and, and and what did you do on Rescuers Down Under? Um, I did Incidental Mice and Krebs the Koala. Okay. Um, and that, that was another, this is like, you know, Ellen, the persistent one, I guess. <laughs> um, um, I, I, um, I wanted to do Krebs. He, he was just a little character in the animal prison, uh, in McLeach's animal prison. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I started doing personal tests on Krebs. And, uh, and I showed him to Mike Gabriel, who was one of the directors. And, uh, and he, he was like, you know, well, I don't know. And I said, and I said, <laughs> so I, I, I was a fairly outspoken person, I guess. Um, well, there were not a lot of women animators either. I mean, think, I think there were two or three. Yeah, Kathy, um, the, yeah, Kathy Zielinski. Yeah, and, me and Kathy were, until Kathy left, we were pretty yeah. much four. And Cynthia Overman was was there at, on for some pictures as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I said I said to Mike, "Well, I'm just going to keep doing tests on Krebs until you until you let me animate him." So. <laughs> <laughs> So I did. And, and ultimately he did. He, he said, okay. Um, so, and that, that was, that was, uh, that was a wonderful opportunity for me because I got, we, we went on this, we had the, uh, the next uh, sort of uh, in production hiatus and we went on the, um, we went, we went on a trip to San Diego zoo to study Australian animals and I, I was mystified by the fur on a koala. It's like, cause you know, I mean, you can, you can look at videos or you can look at the real animal in the zoo and look at it. And it's like, what, you know, I mean, I didn't get it. There was, it didn't blow in the breeze really. It kind of moved a little <laughs> bit and, and when, you know, and it, it crushed a little, so you could tell it was fairly thick, you know, when they were curled up or something. Um, but what is that fur? You know, so so finally we go we go to the San Diego Wild Animal Park and the koala specialist uh, allowed me to touch like the back of the koala as as it was being held sort of away from me that I could just bring my hand in and and feel the texture of that fur. And it was unlike anything I'd ever felt before. And it was suddenly, okay, now I understand it. Now I get that's awesome. what, what that fur is all about. So now I can animate it. Sounds like a great field trip, by the way. Sounds like oh, a really great field trip. And our, and our, the one we did for Lion King was, was even more <laughs> wonderful. That was, that was very extensive. And, and, and that's, and that's a hallmark of working on those Disney films was doing those field trips for research. Yes. Because absolutely. if you're, if you're going to be animating an animal, you want to go learn as much as possible about that animal, but you want to see the animal yep. you want to, and hopefully touch the animal yep. if you could, yeah. obviously, but you know, to see, you know, and I, I remember the artists on Lion King, they did, they did, did they do two trips? to Africa they did a, I don't I don't know that was only the the top filmmakers the directors and the yeah they went to they went to Africa but also um uh there was plenty of opportunities to do research on Lion King with the local zoos yes yes yeah. and San Diego Wild Animal Park and um and the Los Angeles Zoo Yes, and the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. Yeah, um, there, we we went all over the Southwest. 
actually on our on our Lion King uh, research safari. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bus trip of of I don't know how many. Maybe it was a week. I, I can't remember. It was a long time. And, yeah. and it, there was so much to take in, so much drawing, shooting video. Um, it was it was really it was a remarkable experience. But we are getting ahead of ourselves because you did okay. animate uh, you did animate Maurice on Beauty and the Beast. Yes, I was in uh, Ruben Aquino's unit, and and I was this this was the first human for me to animate. And how was and, that? I, I, and, I mean, was well, that intimidating? But, uh, yeah, for the first. For the probably for the first day, I'm I'm going. Oh my goodness! I'm gonna I'm gonna do a human, um, and then I realized because I, then I started studying Maurice and his part and and what Ruben had done, and Maurice is actually a critter. He's a little animal, and 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 Ruben Ruben even drew him like his caricatures of of bunnies and raccoons and squirrels and that kind of stuff, um, as this little chipmunk kind of guy. So, so suddenly I had a path into Maurice. It was like, okay, I, I know little animals. I can do this. And, and it was a, it was a really important part of, um, of my learning. Um, because, it, because you can't be afraid to animate humans. Right. They're really hard because we are them. Um, and we know them. And if they move in a weird way, you can just feel it. You can feel your skin crawl or your, your hair stand on or something. You yeah. can feel it if it's wonky. Um, whereas with an animal, um, there, there is, it's, it's a lot more forgiving. I mean, not that, not that I would forgive myself because it was really important for me to capture that animal as well. Um, but as important as it is to get people right. So for me, and this is just my own opinionated self, it's important to get the animal right too. You know, uh, I, I I completely agree with you on that. Uh, but you know, going from animals to a human, one would think it'd be a little easier because you're going from quadruped to uh, a bipedal, you know, figure. Well, at that point, I'd animated six legs, which was Sebastian. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I'd done four legs, what which was uh, the footstool. Um, Oh, because that was that was at the same time I did Maurice. I also did the little enchanted footstool. Right. So I was so I was studying little little terrier dogs because that's what that's what I thought um, the footstool was. He turned out to be a sheepdog, but but <laughs> as as a piece of furniture, he was a little terrier dog to me. Um, and that was another really cool thing too, because it was a combination of animating a little dog and furniture. And sometimes if he'd get like like stunned or, or surprised or something, he'd turn into furniture for a minute, but then he'd go back to being a dog. So, and I, I like that, that those little jokes that I could throw in those little like furniture jokes. Um, uh, let's see. So what were we were on? Oh, on Maurice on two and four. No, because I like animals. So, and I'm a horse person too. So I understand I I've been, a, and I've had cats all my life. I, I just, and I'd done kittens on Oliver and Company. Right. I, I, I already had one species for legged walk figured out. So, and then, and then, um, oh, and Stuart Sumita. He was, he was, remember him from UCLA? Or was he? Yeah, yeah, UCLA, um, comparative biologist. Yes, he, yes. He came like 
multiple times on so many of our pictures to do workshops, extended workshops. On Lion King, we even did a, a cat dissection down at UCLA. Oh, yeah. But but he 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 demystified um, um, four legged animation because he he could he could say okay so so uh, this this is this is the cat's heel up here those are this is the this is the the ball of their hand that they actually walk on and their toes so so he would he would like break down all the joints so that so that you understood so that so that you could with your imagination. Turn your body parts into into dog body parts or horse body parts or bird body parts. Um, so because you can't you can't animate something if you can't or I can't if you can't feel it, if you can't feel it in your own body, if you can't act it out in your own body, if you can't imagine like for a bird that your wrist bends like completely wrong from what a human wrist does, because bird wrists bend in completely different axes from human wrists. Um, so, so you had to, you had to imagine all that stuff and paste it onto your body and assume the character of the animal and then act out your scene and then animate it. Well, then thumbnail it and animate it. And, and, and not, not that I'm going to jump ahead, but you know a, a lot about birds because you were the supervising animator on Zazu. Yes. So you did an enormous amount of research uh, uh, be, before animating that character. Yes, and, and not only Zazu, but also Rowan Atkinson, because <laughs> because he 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 was basically a caricature of Rowan, and sure. and um and not not really Mr. Bean, but the Black Adder series, yes, where he's, where he's the very sarcastic um, historical figure, um and the expressions and the body language and. Um, I mean, there, there, there was, there was so much there. It was such a rich character because of all this bird stuff and then all this Rowan stuff, you know, and, and, and it's interesting because we've talked with other guests on this show, other artists, other animators, uh, about, um, you know, sort of you, you naturally, it seems like you pick up the mannerisms of the person who's doing the voice of these animated characters. Uh, I mean, you're, were you at the recording sessions with Rowan At Atkinson? Uh, most of them were done in London, uh -huh. um, but uh, I'm, I did meet him when he came to see the boards before he had uh, agreed to be the character. Got it. Um, but he didn't really talk to me um, and I just sort of watched him. <laughs> okay. So you were, you were actually picking up on it, but you, I, I'm imagining you watched some of his shows, right? Oh, oh I watched all of his shows. Yeah. Yes. And I would pull out little bits that I thought were wonderful. And I watched all of his recording sessions because they videotaped him. Yep. Um, so, so I could, I could see all of these wonderful facial expressions because he had this incredibly fluid face. Mm. Um, so, so, and, and since, since his, his face did look an awful lot like, like Rowan, since Zazu's face did, um, it was really fun 
to take the expressions I saw on the video and translate them into the character. It's, it's really something I, I've always been fascinated by it because when you see characters like Mrs. Potts and, you know, Angela Lansbury and other characters, you can't help but see the, the actual actor, the voice actors, personalities and mannerisms, or even just a hint of the mannerisms in, in the animated characters. Well, it's, but as, as actors, the, they, they were there, that was their whole, you know? Yeah. And so if we could take some of that to translate them into an animated character, I think it was, I think it was a rich thing because, yeah. because those were the, those were the mannerisms that went with the voice. Right. Absolutely. So uh, Lion King, you became a supervising animator. So yes. you were calling you were calling the shots on Zazu. Yes, I was the yeah. leader. And uh, and how, how was that? How did that come about? It was fantastic. You were, you were doing Abu on Aladdin. And how, how did the um, the supervising animator gig come for Zazu? I wrote a lot of letters. Oh. I wrote I wrote letters to Roger Allers, to um, Rob Minkoff. Um, I, (laughs) at one point I took Roger out to lunch and I was like, I was like ready to, I wanted to ask him, I I wanted to tell him how interested I was in animating Zazu uh, and, um, that, that I, and, and all the qualifications that I had. And I had a list of what, what I'd done, what I'd already achieved and how this was, would make me an effective directing animator. And, and so we got to the end of the lunch and Roger goes, so, so why did you ask me out to lunch? <laughs> and I'm like, I was just, I was just so nervous. So I got up, I think I got out my list. You may remember whether there was a list or I don't know. Anyway. And I said, well, because I, I really want to be the directing animator on Zazu. And this is why I think I could do a really good job for you. Um, but it was like I, I was I was just like postponing it throughout the entire lunch because I was afraid I was afraid for or that he, that he would turn me down or that, you know, it was just so nerve wracking because I'd been at Disney for seven years. And this was my goal was to be a directing animator, to be in charge of a character, to have that responsibility and that creative input into these films that that I adored making and being part of. And, you know, it, it all came down to like the, the last three minutes of our lunch or something. And so, yeah. I, and so, I'm imagining, I mean, Roger's such a great guy. I mean, okay. he had to have been receptive to the idea. Okay. So, so wait, wait, there's more. <laughs> wait, wait, there's more. So, so, um, so you remember the thing I said about good things happen badly? Yeah. So, <laughs> well, here we go again. Um, so, so uh, I don't know how long after that lunch, um, I, I, I think I was called into uh, Robin Rogers' office. Some, we were in somebody's office. I don't remember the details. Um, and they offered me Sarabi, who is Simba's mother. Right, right. They offered me Simba's mother. Um, and uh, I have no children. I have no interest, really. I mean, children are fine. You know, they're fine, (laughs) but I don't. You don't want any children. They don't. They did not have a significance for me uh, in terms of me being their mother. Right. Um, 
I didn't, I, I had no, I had no experience mm-hmm. with being a mother. I was not interested in being a mother. I didn't know what I would do to research being a mother. I didn't know how to embrace that character because uh, it was not something that I was really interested in. And how could I, how could I bring something out of me, out of my heart that wasn't there? So, so here I am, here I am after, after seven years of, of trying to get there and I turned them down. Did you tell them, did you tell them why you turned? Yes, I said, I can't do that. I don't know how to be a mother. I don't want to be a mother. Right. And, and I went away and I, and I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? But I, I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't just do it because yeah. it was offered to me. It had, hmm. I, it had to come from a place where I could, I could bring something to the, to the character, to the role, to the performance that was exciting to me. You know, I mean, I wasn't just going to do it as a job. Right. Casting. Um, it's casting, right? So you're, you're talking about casting an animator yes, for yes, the role it, that they, that they can bring to the table just as much as an animator, because animators are, as we talk about on the show are actors, they, exactly. they embody that role. And so this is a role that was offered to you that you're not, that you felt like wasn't genuine to your spirit and who you are. So you say maybe something else. No, I, I didn't. I just, I just said, no, I, I, I can't do that. And I mm. left. Were they surprised? I don't know. Cause I left. Oh, oh boy. Oh, wow. I mean, I mean, it was, it was, a, this was, this was a huge thing for me. Sure. Okay. Because you know, seven years, that was, that was my goal. And here, and here I turned it down. Okay. So then later, because be, because the good thing did happen, um, um, they offered me Zazu. That's awesome. Perfect. So yeah, yeah, and and that was that was. I mean, I I felt like I I'd been rescued from the abyss or something. You know, I mean, it was it was like, oh my goodness. So so good things actually do happen badly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I, I mean that that's such a great story but but it, it, and like you said it does illustrate the good things happen badly but you held your ground and I have I have nothing but respect for that I Absolutely. mean you, you felt like that you could not give a hundred percent to Sarabi and so you turned it down yeah yeah well I, I I another one of my philosophies is that it's really important to have fun. Sure. And that would not have been fun. That would have been yeah. drudgery for you. It would have been. Yeah. So, okay. So back to beauty and the beast, I, um, everybody, and this, this was another really good thing about Disney was that everybody shared the crowd scenes. Everybody got a few crowd scenes here and there, a few scenes of, you know, like, like I did soft shoeing teacups. And I think, I think I did them for like 10 weeks or something. I had carpal tunnel by the end of it from all those ellipses because every teacup had like, I don't know, eight ellipses in it. And then they're all moving around and dancing. And anyway, so, so I also did the scene in the bar where um, Maurice's cronies, uh, uh, they, they pick on Maurice, they throw him down on the floor and they throw it. They, they, uh, they ridicule him and they, Mm -hmm. they threaten him and they throw him out the door into the snowdrift. So I had to do those cronies uh, and, and they're making fun of him. Is it a big beast? Um, You know, all this, all this stuff, because they're, 
they're, they don't believe him. And anyway, great scene. So, so these, these characters were, uh, uh, stupid, ugly, mean. Um, um, they were things that I don't enjoy. Mm. And, but you know, but everybody got their bunch of, of, of crowd things to do, you know, so I did them. But man, it was it was like forcing concrete blocks through my veins. It was really, really hard because I wasn't going to not do a good job on it. Yeah. And yet it was I had no avenue into these characters. I didn't understand them. I didn't I didn't want to be because you have to act like an ugly, stupid, mean character while you're animating them. You have to think that way. Yeah. You have to be that way. At least I did. That's because that was my that that was my sort of my pathway into myself, into my creativity was was to find it in myself and bring it out. You know, and you have to you learn and you paste it on, but you can't just paste it on. So anyway, that was a horrible experience. So so knowing knowing that that there were actually there were characters that I did not want to animate. Um, I knew that I couldn't do Sarabi. Yeah. So that, it just reinforced the fact when Sarabi was offered that you just didn't want to do. Yeah. Was it, Oh, wait a minute. The cronies. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go through a crony thing. Yeah. And, and definitely not for the life of a picture. Yeah. Wow. And then, so from Zazu on The Lion King, uh, you did some additional animation on Pocahontas and Hunchback to help get those films finished, which is always the case. Before yeah. before you moved on to your next directing anime or supervising animator role, which was the Pegasus in mm -hmm. Hercules. Talk about bringing yeah. two great things together, your love of horses and birds. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is why I was so, so uh, excited to do that character because I knew all this stuff, but it was a little different because Pegasus is a big bird, you know, and I had studied uh, medium sized birds like crows, that kind of thing to do Zazu because, because hornbills are just about the size of a crow. Mm -hmm. um, but, but to do Pegasus, I studied enormous birds, trumpet, trumpeter swans, the biggest birds you could find because this was a really heavy character. And so, so there, there was that. Plus, I, I adore horses and I've been a horse person for most of my life and a, a rider and an owner and a caretaker and all that stuff. Um, so I knew horses really well. And, and the other thing about Pegasus was that he's a jock. And I, I knew nothing, nothing about being a jock. So Terry Naughton, who, who is an incredible sportsman, uh, football coach, football player, uh, state wrestling. I mean, all this stuff. And I, and he was in my unit. He was in my cleanup unit. I said, Terry, can you teach me how to be a jock? So he <laughs> taught, awesome. he taught me how to make a fist and how to throw a punch. Um, and he gave me, he gave me, um, football preseason football practice videos to see, uh, the camaraderie and the, the, the way that jocks move and relate to each other. And that, that's where the, the head, the head, um, bashes came from was one of those, it was, it was called total access or something. I don't know who, oh, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. who the teams were, but, but it was total access football and these two players, they were doing something and they'd just done something wonderful. And they came, came, they, they met, 
each other and they grabbed each other's helmets and they slammed them into like the boom in, into this huge headbutt. Uh, of course, with with helmets on. But but that I'm going, wow, I can use that. That's amazing. So, so that's that's one of the ways that that Herc and, and Peg relate is this purely physical, yeah. you know, bashing into each other kind of stuff. Um and of course, because it's animation, you can take it to a really um, extreme and caricatured sort of thing. And and that's that that was a really fun part of of learning that character. And the other thing is, he's a practical joker, and and I am not. So I had to become that. I had to understand that. So I did annoying things to my friends. Um, <laughs> so you became a practical joker there for a little bit. I mean, in, a, in, a, in an incredibly mild, subdued sort of way. Sure, sure, sure. You know, and, and very subtle. No, no, no. Okay, so, so okay, so like, you know, I, I had my little message on my telephone. So, so, um, and it, it used, it used to say, hi, this is Ellen. I'm not here. Please leave a message. Or, 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 um, so one of this, this is this, like the scale of my practical, you know, so the, so the message went, hello. So, <laughs> so my friends would go, hi, Ellen, blah, 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 blah. And then they'd hear the beep. So, <laughs> so that was that. Okay. So, you know, very benign. I never put a bucket of water above the door in my office or anything like that. Right. Right. Um, um, I, I don't, I didn't. Well, I probably did have some plastic throw up, but you know, that was, it, it was all very benign. I mean, honestly, who didn't have the plastic throw up? You know, you know, you got mean, the, the that yeah. and the the spilled coffee yeah. on the desk on all the drawings, right? You probably were one of those that oh, had the fake yeah, coffee. That, I, I didn't have one of those. Oh no! Yeah. Did, did, did you did, did you ever put a, a clove of garlic on somebody's light bulb under their uh, animation no, disc? No, 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 that was always a favorite. No, I never. No. no, see, I I was very benign, but for me, okay, that was that was a practical joke. But but I had to think that way. I had to think in terms of, you know, how how can I how can I uh, get your goat, uh, Ellen? Ellen, the sweet uh, the sweet practical joker. <laughs> well, well, it was, I, uh, yeah, I'll take that. Okay, take all right. That. Nice, nice. <laughs> so from Hercules, uh, you did some additional animation on Tarzan and on the Rhapsody in Blue sequence for Fantasia 2000 before your next supervising animation gig, which was the crew of Captain Long John Silver, yeah. you know, his pirate. pirate crew. And, you know, I have to tell you, I think Treasure Planet is a very underrated movie. I think that uh, it didn't get the real support that it needed from Agreed. the studio when it was released and part of that had to do with the the uh the, the battle going on between Michael Eisner and Roy Disney, who Roy, Roy E. Disney was the chairman of the animation department at that time. And uh, there was a lot of sort of behind the scenes shenanigans going on with that, uh, which, which prevented Treasure Planet from really uh, getting its legs, uh, I think, because it's really an incredible movie. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, and, the context... I, 
the historical context was really unfortunate. Yeah, it really was. But but that was a film that uh, was, I think, groundbreaking. You know, you had John, uh, Long John Silver's arm. Uh, Long John Silver was done by uh, Glenn Keane. And the arm uh, of that character was all computer generated. And the rest of his body was Glenn's beautiful animation. And, yeah. you know, it was just a, a, a really uh, 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 creative take on taking uh, Treasure Island and putting it in outer space and all of that. Uh, but how was your experience working on that film? Well, this was this was a thing, another escalating technology thing. Okay, so remember in Tarzan, we had deep canvas? Yes. Yeah, and that uh-huh. was like, that blew me away. Yeah. That was so gorgeous. And then in Treasure Planet, we had moving backgrounds. We yeah. had changing perspective. We had two characters standing there talking like uh, the, the cat and mouse scene between Jim and, and Silver. Yeah. And they're, they're having this, this sort of touchy dialogue and the camera is prowling around the room. So yeah. they are drawn. Their, their camera move is drawn. Yeah. You had to map it out, um, layout, because the layouts were done in the computer. And we got these funny little, and which were really useful, but they were these little geometric stacks of shapes so that you yeah. could see how much the shape was changing as the, as the animated camera move was happening. Yeah. So, so this was, this was, wow, a, a real mind bender. This was, this was, I mean, all of animation is creative problem solving. Sure. And I, at, on every single picture, I mean, Pegasus was loaded with creative problem solving. Um, it, uh, it, there was just, just to, to go back a little bit, there was one scene and it was laid out in levels on video and I had no, I had no drawn layout. It was like, okay, here's the video. This is what we want to happen. The, the clouds part and Pegasus dives through the clouds. They're going to Thebes. And, uh, and there was, I had nothing. I literally had nothing to work with. And I had to figure out, okay, here we are. Here's the clouds. Let's say the clouds part here. And Pegasus goes, I mean, it was, it, it was really something out of nothing. Right. Um, it was just a videotape. So, so when you get to Treasure Planet, and okay, I had, I had, oh, okay, <laughs> the characters were wonderful. Okay, uh, Bird Brain Mary was basically a skull, a a pelvis, and legs, which also functioned as arms. Okay, then you had uh, Turnbuckle, who had four octopus arms, four octopus legs eyes on stems and with the attitude of Robert Mitchum. Uh-huh. Okay. So he was, he was this like sexy cowboy pirate with four octopus arms and four octopus legs. So, I mean, um, another, another one of them, I think his name was dog breath, but I'm not sure. I think uh, T Dan Hofstead uh, named him. Uh, so, and he had suction cup. No, no, no. He had, his arms acted like crutches. Yeah. And then there was another one who had a seal body and suction cup arms. Uh, so, so he could, he could like, you know, like, like toilet plungers sort of. Right. Uh, uh, anyway. So here we are with these bizarre characters and this moving camera and these funny little stand in shapes that tell you what's going on. And it was this incredible mind bender to get your head around this stuff. 
But by, I don't know, a couple of months into it, it made sense. You could do it. It, yeah. You could actually make the things work. And it was amazing. And, and, it was, and that, I, I was going to say that was, that was really the point where, you know, the uh, integration of computer generated images with hand drawn images was really hitting its apex. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, the, the cap system had gotten to a place where um, uh, it, it, it was virtually, you know, people started talking uh, internally about, uh, you know, at some point they're just going to go into to a uh, completely computer generated movie. And, and of course, Pixar was already doing that, you know, Toy Story had already been out and some of the other early Pixar films had already been released. So, so Treasure Planet really was going to be one of those pictures that uh, was pushing the envelope of technology so much that uh, there, there was those discussions to say, well, when are we going to convert to just doing completely digital films? Yes. Yes, and, and it started, well, it was there on Great Mouse Detective with the clock. Yeah, the clock but, years. But then, there was always some element in, yeah. in the animated films, but every picture, it got more and more and more complicated. Yes, in, in Pegasus, we had the Hydra. Yes. And then, and then we, and we had Ben, who was completely computer, computer animated, but then translated back into cell animation. Yeah. Um, as I mean, like the Hydra, but, but Ben was like more of a Hydra was, was a kind of a monster, but Ben was actually a, a character with a really strong personality. Yeah. So yeah, we were, we were sort of dancing on the fringe uh, before taking the plunge. Yep, exactly. And, and that was really your last supervising animator role was yes, on Treasure was. Planet. Yep. Now I'm, I'm going to kind of fast forward us because I know you worked on Chicken Little and Meet the Robinsons, but you left Disney in, was it 2007, 2008? No, it was 2005. Was it 2005? It, it was October of 2005. Wow. Yeah. And, and why did you decide to leave? I was, I was there exactly 20 years and two weeks. Huh. Yeah, which is and it, was it like an alarm went off? Said up oh, twenty years, I got to go on and no, do something else. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it was. It was the end of a dream. Wow. Yeah, the dream went south. I had, I did, I did traditional classic Disney animation for fifteen years, and it was oh my goodness, wonderful. I did computer animation on Maya for five years. And it got to the point where doing the thumbnails for my scene was my most favorite part of animating because I yeah. got to draw. Sure. And I went to, to the Disney two-hour drawing classes every single day. Mm. Every day. I was there for two hours with whoever the instructor was or the uninstructed drawing lab drawing. And then I'd go back and work on the computer. And uh, it got to the point where... I just, I had to admit that it wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't fun. What was fun was the drawing, the thumbnails. Um, and I started um, because of, of uh, one of the drawing instructors. He was a monumental bronze sculptor and he got. Oh, uh, Ron. Yes. Ron Picard. Yeah. Ron Picard. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, what a wonderful uh, sculptor he is. Yes, he is. Incredible. Yeah, very talented. Um, 
And he was he was doing a little sculpture class at Disney Animation for the employees. Like, what was it, once a month? No, it wasn't. No, it was a drawing class. It was a drawing class, but, but he, he, brought he in, ultimately he, did a sculpture class. He brought in clay. Well, that might have yeah. been after I left. Okay. He brought in clay and he said, here, make something that fits in a coffee can. So, so a, bu- a bunch of us, um, uh, uh, I remember me and uh, Randy and somebody else. Um, there were, there, I don't know, there might've been six or seven of us who did it actually. And he took it to a, to a, uh, a brass industrial foundry. And months later, like three months, four months later, brought back these little tiny brass figures that had been our clay sculptures that fit in a coffee can. I, so, uh, I, you know what I'm doing? I'm reaching up onto my animation desk here to show you uh, a couple of those because here's oh, yes. a, a little bronze uh, uh, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit that uh, my assistant, Minnie, at the time, Minnie Chen had done for us, uh, for me. She gave these to me as a gift. Nice. And she did them with Ron Picard's, yes, uh, in yes, Ron Picard's fit, class. Nice. And he sits yeah. in a coffee can. Yeah, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. That's cool. Yeah, so so that was that was really fun. It was really tactile, and it was like, oh my goodness, I can actually hold in my hands something that I made. I'm not flipping through drawings. I'm not holding a pile of drawings. I'm not pointing at a screen and saying, oh, there it is. There it is. It was right here. It was right here in my hands. And that was that was a new sensation to me. And I thought, wow, this is fun. This is really fun. It was an epiphany for you. It was. It was. Yeah. And it took it took a while. Um, I think I did every union holiday for a year. I would make because it was a three day weekend. Yeah. I would make a little figure and take it and have it cast. Mm. Um, and uh, Ron told me about this sculpture show in Loveland, Colorado called Sculpture in the Park. And he said, Ellen, if you're interested in sculpture, you really need to go there and see this. So so I went. My sister, my younger sister lived in Steamboat. She came to Loveland. We met in Loveland. We did this sculpture show. It was actually two sculpture shows with something like... 200 sculptors in one place, each sculptor having at least 10 sculptors. So that, so, you know, do the math. It was like 2000 sculptors or 2,500, something, an enormous amount of sculpture in one place for one weekend. So, um, so it blew me away. It was, I mean, the, the, the sculptors were there. You could talk to them. You could ask them questions. You, it was, it was amazing. So now, I'm you, driving. I, I'm I was driving. Gonna, I, I was just going to ask you the question though. Like you, you, so you went there when they were having this show. Yeah. For like a vacation, like yep. you decided, I'm going to yep. go. I want to see this show. Yep. And then, and then, what happened after you you saw that show? Um, I, I, I sat down exhausted, but elated, and I was I was driving. Okay, so this is this is really sappy, but it's it's true. It's a true story, but it's very sappy. So get your, put your armor on. So, so my sister had already gone back to Steamboat. I was driving back to Denver International Airport in my rental car by myself. And the theme from the Lion King comes on the radio. And so, <laughs> and so I'm driving, I'm driving down 
I-25 crying my eyes out just because of everything that was happening all at once. So, so I, by, by the time I got back to, to Valencia and Brian picked me up and, um, and I'd recovered, I said, you know, and I told him all about it. And I, and I, and I said, well, you know, I, I don't think I'm ready to do, to do that. I don't think I'm ready to quit. Um, simply because it was so overwhelming mm. that, you know, oh my goodness, here's the Lion King music. You know, it's just to, like to remind me of my, of my past 20 years. Um, uh, so, so it only took a year actually of, of meditation and, and thought and planning and thinking and talking to Brian and trying to figure out what I wanted, you know, how, how to go forward. Um, and, and so, so having spent my, my union holidays making these little bronzes, um, I applied to the unjuried show in Loveland mm-hmm. for the next summer of that next weekend. I went there, uh, did the show we bought a house. I came back to, to L.A. and gave them my two weeks notice. So you actually bought a house. Yeah. On that weekend. Wow. Yeah. It was like, in, yeah. In, in Loveland. Yes. Yeah. I, and now I, you're originally from where? New York? I'm from or? upstate New York. I'm from yeah. Corning, New York. Okay, so you're originally uh, Corning, New York, isn't there? A huge uh, glass. Yes. Uh, uh, there's a there's a Corning sculpture uh, or Corning glass sculpture uh, museum up there. Yes. And, yes, and the, the company, Corning Museum the Corning, of Glass. The, yeah, yes. the, the Corning uh, company, uh, the glass company is yep. up there. That that's fantastic. So so you had you spent much time in Loveland, Colorado, or was it just that one sculpture show? And- it was the one sculpture show, and then we came back the next year. And and Brian came with me and we did the sculpture show. And then he was he was in Denver for for a um, his his dad was in the Air Force and there was a he was a, an active veteran in their their reunions. Yeah. So they there was a reunion in Denver. So he went with his parents and he took an afternoon and drove up to Loveland just to walk around and talk to people and see what he thought. And he came back with a positive feeling. Mm. about about the town wow. um, and he said and he said yeah let's do it that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's really an incredible story. And so you've been living in Loveland, Colorado since then. Yep. And you're doing your full time as a sculptor, yep. selling your work and showing your work. I mean, yep. you've you've had one one artist, like one person show. Yes. Yes. Several. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. But I, I'm also I, I do international shows and national shows um, that are all juried. It's it's OK. So so uh, what you said about Disney being competitive. Um, <laughs> yeah. The fine art world is even more so. Very I mean, competitive. I, I thought I thought I had a thick skin, you know. Yeah, um, well, at which you develop at Disney because yes, exactly. your work because yes. your work is always being critiqued. Right, I I thought I had a thick skin. It wasn't thick enough. Wow. Um, the fine art world it's 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 not dog eat dog by any means because there have been I've had wonderful mentors who because I mean if if you haven't I have no problem asking anyone a question about something. If there's something I want to learn, something I don't understand, something I want someone to explain to me, I have no qualms about asking. It was mm-hmm. it was at, at Disney. I did that. And, and I was sure. always rewarded with a good answer. Um, and in in the sculpture world, 
Um, I, ha- I have done that and, and been mostly always rewarded with a good answer. The, um, I had thought I would come here because Loveland is Bronzetown. There are four foundries here. There's an incredible community of very skilled artisans because, because bronze is not an easy medium and it right. requires a lot of, of knowledge and aesthetic knowledge and experience, you know, so. Sure. So and, I, and, I and, and by the way, also not not only in the uh, creation of the piece and the casting of the piece, but also in the finishing with the patinas. Oh yes, everything. Because there's yes. so many different types of finishes and and patinas you can do, and I know that because I actually cast one of my sculptures in bronze as well, and and I learned all about it, and also the fact that California doesn't really have much in the way of foundries because of all the uh, environmental regulations they have in California. So my my piece was cast at a foundry up in Oregon, yep. and and here you are in Colorado where there's you know plenty of foundries. Yeah. Yeah. It's really Brownstown. Um, but also Colorado is a stone center. It is mm. a stone sculpting center because of the Yule quarry, which is in marble, Colorado. Yule marble made the tomb of the unknown soldier, um, among, oh. among other things that's, that's made from Yule marble. Um, anyway, I thought I would be a bronze sculptor, but I took, so I, so I got here after, you know, I had to wait for escrow and all that. So I, so I didn't get to Colorado. Brian was already here. He moved in October. I didn't move until November. Um, but then the the Loveland Museum, which is a very small but really, really active, uh, wonderful small museum, they they had a stone sculpting seminar, a five day seminar that was that was in January of two thousand six. And I and so um, Brian said, "Yeah, why didn't you do it?" And I'm like, "Oh, well, okay." Might as well. Heck. So, uh, so I called him up and it was full and I said, Oh, will you put me on the waiting list? Oh, well, we don't have a waiting list. Wait a minute. Let me make one. So, so somebody dropped out. So I got in. Awesome. So, so that was my introduction to stone and I met the most wonderful people. I had a very intense, incredible experience. It was taught by a Zimbabwe master sculptor with hand tools. Um, and I remember uh, it, it, it was it was so tactile. It was so it was tactical and physical and and I mean, in animation, in traditional Disney animation, drawing is a total body experience. Uh, you you have to sit in the chair, but you're flipping and drawing, and and you get up and you look in the mirror and you act something out, and and it's a very very physical sort of a thing and you're feeling everything that you're doing well stone sculpture my goodness okay so so it's heavy and you're hitting you're hitting a stone with a hammer and a chisel and sometimes like when you don't know what you're doing you miss the chisel and you hit your hand and your hand goes crashing into the stone and so i i had bloody hands uh, on days when I would when I would leave this this museum, I mean, you know, the, the, I'm not an extreme person, but really, seriously, when you hit your hand with a steel hammer and it crashes into a stone, it, it hurts. It's a it, really physical experience. It hurts. <laughs> yeah, but 
But okay, but the thing is that you keep doing it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you, you hit your hand less and less because it hurts so much. Hmm. But you still keep at it. You're still taking the little chips off. You're still working away at at that little block. It's the learning process. So yeah, which is which is yeah. uh, which I love. I love to learn things. Um, I love new experiences. So, so that was my, that was my introduction. I thought, wow, this is fun. Oh, they're beautiful so, sculptures. Uh, they're beautiful. I mean, I, I, I'm on your website now and I know that you've got your artist statement, which is great. It's, you know, celebrating the variety of animals we live with through the stylized stone sculptures with one of a kind design, reflecting that each creature is special and significant, which I'm, you know, I've talked about the fact that, you know, my wife and I have rescued uh, cats before and we still continue to do that and i can just see your heart your heart poured out in these sculptures and they're they're great uh, i absolutely love them thank you thanks yeah. so alan as we as we come to a close what what's on the horizon for you here uh do you have any shows coming up uh and uh is your work available through galleries or uh through your website i mean i know we're going to add the uh website link to our show notes right al john okay. absolutely yeah if you'd yeah. like in any other uh sure, you know Every, everywhere she wants to be, uh, we'll put it on the notes. Yeah. So uh, are you working towards another show or what's going on now? Um, well, right now I have four pieces in an all state. It's, a, it's, called a, it's the Governor's Art Show, which is at the Loveland Museum. And it's, it's only uh, Colorado artists. Mm -hmm. And there happen to be a ton of sculptors in Colorado, really, really good. Um, but they only have 12. It's mostly a painting show, but there are 12 sculptors. So I'm one of 12 sculptors in the Governor's Art Show. That closes on June 27th. Uh, then I have um, Sculpture in the Park, which is the largest outdoor sculpt juried sculpture show in the country. That mm -hmm. comes up August 5th, I think, and it runs that through that weekend. Um, I have a piece uh, through an international organization I'm in called the Society of Animal Artists that will be in Tucson starting in August for a couple of months. Then I have a piece, uh, or yeah, it's also through Society of Animal Artists that will be starting at the Roger Torrey Peterson Institute in upstate New York and then traveling to three other, two or three other museums uh, in the Midwest and East Coast. I have a piece in that. Then I have a, a piece in Artists for Conservation, which is a, an international uh, organization of artists. So I do I do these national shows. I do Sculpture in the Park, which is the only tent show I do because stone's really heavy, and to yeah. travel with stone is insanity. Right. So right. so we moved to Loveland uh, because of that show. Mm. That's the show that I visited that just naturally. And, and you do that show every year now, every right? Year, every year. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. Plus, uh, my work is available from my website and I am in a gallery. Uh, it's called Raitman Fine Art. It's in uh, Vail and Breckenridge. Um, and they they are that's the only gallery that I work with. They treat my 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 sculpture with incredible respect. Nice. They know all the stories of all the pieces. So so they they can they can speak almost as uh, as as informed about my work as I can. Um, that's that's one of one of the hallmarks of of their gallery is that they know their artists, they know the work, and they know what they're talking about. That's so they're nice. the only people who sell my stuff outside of me or these shows that I'm in. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Well, this has been an incredible uh, discussion. And, it, yes, and, I, and, I have, and I have to say, so great to see you, Alan. Uh, and, and, and I've admired uh, some of your work because I've seen it um, uh, uh, over the last several years. I've been seeing some of your pieces and keeping abreast of what you've been doing. And so I was thrilled to, to, to have you on the show and uh, uh, wish you nothing but luck and uh, good wishes for all of these shows you've got your artwork in. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. I I want to say in closing that everything that I learned in animation, I apply to my sculpture. Of course. Everything. Of course. I mean, even the timing, because I can control the way your eye travels over my work by the use of textures or open spaces, uh, lines, curves, breaking and bending light. I mean, everything, even these even weird esoteric things. You can always come up with a metaphor that acts as a springboard to some aspect of stone, some aspect of, of sculpture. Can I ask you this question? Uh, the uh, do you, do you actually do some drawings? Do you do you plan out what you're going to do? Um, do you sit down and oh, and yes. sketch it and and fill, fill your sketchbooks and say this is this piece I'm going to do in this kind of a material? Uh, yes. I mean, there's different types yes. of stone, obviously. And, yep. and and am I correct in saying that marble falls into the umbrella term stone? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so you're yeah. working you're working in all kinds of marbles and quartz or. Uh, no, quartz is way no too quartz. hard. No, I, right. I work um, infrequently in alabaster, which is a very soft metamorphic yes. stone. Uh-huh. But I work mostly in marble and okay. marbles come in. Uh, the Colorado Yule marble is the softest marble on the planet, and it's only a hundred million years old. Wow! The very famous Carrara statuary marble that is five hundred million years old, and it is the best carving stone on the planet. Wow! I carve I carve all different colors of stone, uh, different varieties of marble, that, and calcite. Calcite is completely different. And marbles uh, come in colors, right? Oh yes! Yeah. Oh yeah! Yeah. Uh, there's there's black marble. Um, just I I tend to like black black marble and white marble mm-hmm. because of the ways that I can manipulate light mm-hmm. and manipulate the eye. Yeah, using using texture, shine, uh, uh, curves, planes. You know that's that's my new language, and it com- all of it comes from animation because because it's so similar. But but. To answer your question about the drawing, um, you know, a character model sheet where there's a turnaround. I do that for my sculptures. I make a turnaround. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I create a pose. I push it. I want an extreme. I want an extreme extreme. Um, and I want to know it from every angle. I want to know what, what the heck is it going to look like on the back, on the side, you know, where, because you're, it, you're not just creating the illusion of three dimensions, which is what we did at Disney. You're creating real three dimensions and it needs to work. So a lot of times I will also make a small clay so that I can see it and go, oh yeah, because these things take hundreds, hundreds of hours to make. And you don't want to get to the end of it and go, oh darn, that didn't work, did it? Mm, Because that's that's a huge waste of time. (laughs) Okay, and I don't like wasting time. I don't like making mistakes. I like to, I, I was always a planner. I love doing thumbnails. I love planning. 
It's where you get to dream and scheme and and pull ideas out of the air and crash them together and see what happens. I uh, it's a it's it's a really really fun thing. And then and then it's the animation thing of creator and critic. You do something and you and then you put on your critics hat and you go, okay, what's wrong with it? Which is what which is what we did at Disney all the time. It was like so so in the fine art world, when you critique someone's work, they're okay, they're not from the Disney culture. They don't get it. You have to be kind. You have to first say something good. Yes. And then you can then you can say, but it's a little weak right here. You see how that's doing that? And you see how you can do that? And you know, so yeah. 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 Well, it's great. I know that when you check out the the website, ellenwoodberry.com, you can check out all of your, you know, the stuff you have in your archive and the stuff that you're working on in commission. One of my favorites I see here is that magic lesson about the dragon with the, the oh. uh, hat, which is great because it, it actually lists the type of uh, stones you're working with, the red travertine and the alabaster oh, yeah. and all that. And you can see the, the black marble on granite and the different things that you use. So it's just beautiful stuff. And uh, hopefully everybody can just check it out and get on that newsletter of yours and and see where uh, they can get your work. There's also an animation timeline where I talk about the aspects of, of the films that I brought directly into my stone. There's also an animation theater where there's some uh, pencil tests. Yeah. Um, and I did a video. There's a video in my uh, studio where I'm talking about animation and stone. So there's there's actually a lot of animation there, even though it's it's all as it relates to my stone. Well, there you have it, ellenwoodberry.com. And Ellen, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for coming on Skull Rock Podcast. It was great seeing you and great chatting with you. Thanks very much. And thanks, Al John. It's great to meet you. And I'm really happy to be part of your podcast. Thank you. Your attention, please. (laughs) Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. A lot of fun with Ellen. How about that? She's really terrific. I mean, incredible talent. And I would encourage our audience to uh, uh, Google her uh, and take a look at some of her sculptures. I mean, just really incredible work that she's done. And she's really, you know, uh, a, a wonderful artist. Absolutely. We'll leave some links in our show notes so you can check out what's going on with Ellen Woodbury. But uh, a lot of fun. And speaking of guests, Dave, we've got a few lined up. We do. Absolutely. And you know something, Al John? Next week, we have the great Aaron Blaze, uh, animator. He was a co director of Brother Bear. Yeah. Uh, and he's an unbelievable wildlife artist. He's going to be on our show. And then the following weekend is our 4th of July show, which is going to be explosive. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. That should be a lot of fun. Um, Once again, if you love Disney and pop culture, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Pass it on to your friends and leave us those reviews and voicemails. We'll have the links here in the show notes and subscribe to our social media feeds uh, easily. Facebook is the best place to check us out, but uh, we're also on Twitter and Instagram. And be sure to visit our site for the archives. If you've missed a show, we've got incredible, incredible shows uh, that you can check out from all these different creators from, um, you know, from Bob Gurr. In fact, you can check it out or Floyd Norman. Um, you can check out all those shows in the archive there online at our website, uh, skullrockpodcast.com. 
You can also lend us those emails once again, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. Dave, we leave you with the final words. Well, as I always say to everyone, peace and love. Go out there and have a fantastic uh, week ahead. Uh, Be kind to one another. And we look forward to uh, having you back uh, for another Skull Rock podcast next week. Skull Rock podcast is made possible by listeners like you. We'd love to thank. Charles, Lindsay, Spencer, and Joshua. To support this podcast to sustain future episodes, visit anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com. <laughs>